0: They can get it back in-
1: Hello. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Hello. Hello, everybody. Good morning, everyone. We're going to get started. Um. (laughs) It's actually a very sensitive mic if you get close to it. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our session, Culturally Responsive Practices in Food and Nutrition Security Interventions in the United States. Um, My name is Ailey Kent. I'll be the moderator for what promises to be a thought-provoking discussion. You know, about a million immigrants move to the United States each year, including hundreds of thousands of refugees and asylum seekers. Um, You know, these new Americans often arrive with Healthy eating patterns and behaviors, um, but these often erode over time because of structural inequalities, such as lack of access to healthy food, poor transportation, you know, lack of culturally appropriate food options. I have them up here: proximity to cheap processed food, um, and in fact, there are some statistics like over after after. You know, five years more or less in the US, um, immigrants are 1.5 times more likely to have developed diet related disease than when they arrived. Um, and within one generation, we're seeing immigrant health can be as poor as other Americans with similar income status. Um, a lot of immigrants move into communities that are, you know, known as food deserts or are uh, dealing with what some people term food apartheid. Um, and so that, that access to healthy food and more importantly food that is familiar and culturally appropriate um, is just not as available as it probably should be. Um, so anyway, food access is certainly a key piece of the puzzle, but um, most interventions um, still lack culturally responsive Approaches that can truly impact the nutrition and health of these populations. Um, so, today we're excited to explore the imp- importance of cultural responsiveness in promoting good nutrition um, and share examples of how this has played out in some programs. So, today we have with us Petrilli Hernandez of Embody Lib. Their organization aims to support black, brown, indigenous people of color. Um, otherwise known as people of the global majority, in reclaiming their health and well-being. Their work involves educating and training medical, health, nutritional, and wellness providers in applying weight-inclusive and multi-dimensional frameworks into their programming and institutional practices, and advocating to disrupt the status quo systems, policies, and practices that negatively impact the health and well-being of global majority groups. They will lead off our discussion by providing some grounding in the importance of cultural responsiveness in nutrition interventions. Uh, Eugenia Gusev and myself, Ailey Kent, we're from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works across 40 countries to help people recover and rebuild their lives after conflict, disaster, and forced displacement. Um, in the US, IRC is active in 40 cities. Eugenia and I support the New Roots program, which assists new American populations to access the food they need to thrive. And this includes multiple interventions such as urban farming programs, community markets, and food systems education. Um, Today, Eugenia is going to discuss how New Roots has used cultural humility in its assessment practices to understand what clients need and how IRC can best respond. And finally, we have Eleni, Rigsby of the Capillaria Food Bank, uh, the Food bank provides access to food and opportunity to people to struggling with to people struggling with hunger and food insecurity in the DC metro area. Um, they source and distribute food to more than 50 million meals um, a year. and Eleni will discuss how her organization has worked to ensure that their procurement reflects the needs of the clients that they serve. So after the presentations, we should have some time for all of you to talk about how you might apply some of your learnings from today, um, ask any questions, and have a bit of discussion. But for now, I'm gonna hand it over
2: to Patrilli. Good morning, everybody. I hope um, this finds you well. And uh, how many people are feeling bittersweet, excited, but sad that we are the last day of our conference today. I know for me, that's definitely the case. Um, I've been able to learn so much, meet some amazing people over the past four days. Um, And we know the work is not over uh, when we leave today, but just thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for hanging in with us. So as I mentioned, my name is Patrilli. Um, and I have about 15 years of professional experience in public health, nutrition, and food, but um, it wasn't until I was diagnosed with an eating disorder in 2017 that I realized how much of my own disordered thoughts and behaviors around food health and my body impacted not only my personal life, but my professional life. That's why I started EmbodyLib in 2018. Um, I leveraged my academic background in anthropology, um, nonprofit management, nutrition, and DEI with lived experiences in, um, with, with my lived experience, uh, scholarship, evidence-based practice, and my professional background in public health education, program development, and policy. Um, and I work with medical health and wellness providers in a, a deconstructing and examining beliefs about food, bodies, and health, reclaiming and rebuilding what it means to thrive, and strengthening and nurturing communities in addition to movement building and movement organizing. So my role today is to set the stage for uh, our remaining speakers and uh, what it means to be culturally responsive. So what does it mean for nutrition interventions to be culturally responsive? Well, for us to understand that, we have to first understand what cultural relevance means and cultural humility means. How many of you have heard one or or both of those terms before? Great, the majority of us. So, For nutrition um, intervention to be culturally relevant, it's also known as being culturally appropriate. Uh, It acknowledges that some foods and meals hold cultural significance to a particular group of people, and it focuses on the identification of cultural relevant foods and meals, but it excludes a deeper analysis around the significance of these foods and their connection to, to the development of community and individual identity. When we think of culturally humble nutrition interventions, it goes beyond the acknowledgement and focuses on engaging in exploratory and deconstructive practices to become more aware of ethnocentric beliefs, biases, and assumptions, so it's a lot more internal work. And it understands that cultural practices around the preparation and consumption of certain foods, including where, how, and with whom it is eaten, aid in in developing community and individual identity, but this is often set aside to promote individualized notions of health and nutrition. So let's go one step beyond and aim to be culturally responsive. What does that mean? So it combines cultural knowledge with our self-awareness and moves towards action, focusing on building strong and trusting relationships with the community. It it involves using participatory action methods and lived experience as fundamental parts of program development. And it integrates an ongoing feedback loop between the nutrition provider and the community. It also finally understands that nutrition and health are multidimensional and differ cross-culturally. So I work a lot with dietitians. I work a lot with nutrition providers. Um, on the concept of food access and what it means to have full food access, especially for those um, from different cultures. And so there are many layers to food access. So some of you might recognize pieces of this. I did draw from Ellen Sadler's, um, uh, her, her, her hierarchy of food needs, um, but I adopted it based on my lived experience and, and scholarship. Because one thing that was missing was the cultural aspect about the importance of cultural foods as an integral part of developing community and individual identity. So there are many layers to food access and when we utilize a multi-tiered approach when assessing for food access ensures that we're inclusive across cultural definitions of food insecurity, of food security rather. And so, you know, you see that the language has shifted a lot from uh, addressing food food security to addressing both food and nutrition security. But we have to remember that at the end of the day, that to fulfill both our physical, biological, and our psychosocial needs, we have to prioritize food security first, especially cultural food security, before we focus on the nutrition piece. And more often than not, we find that for the vast majority of cultures and cuisines, if a community or individual has access to a consistent and adequate supply of food, they have access to culturally relevant or what I call culturally necessary foods, they have access to preferred foods and a variety of foods, you naturally have all the foods you need to promote eating for nutrition. They are not, like that's not a separate category. And so I've been able to provide you a little snapshot around um, the nuances around food access. But that's not the only piece. We also want to talk today about the nuances of applying a cross-cultural lens to assessing food and nutrition insecurity and the importance of centering client voice. And to that, I'm going to pass it along to my colleague, Eugenia, who's going to
0: talk more about that. Thank you very much, Ashley. Okay. So, I'm going to speak about measurement and client voice and our experience at IRC, trying to make, uh, to draw in more client voice into our measurement and to improve our interventions to be much more culturally responsive. Um, as Ailey already introduced, IRC is one of um, about eight uh, major resettlement agencies in the United States. We work with populations abroad who are conflict-affected, disaster-affected, and we work with those same populations here in the United States. New Roots specifically focuses on land-based food and agriculture interventions, and we currently have programs in about 12 of our offices where you see the green leaves. Um, in terms of our impact, over the past year, we've impacted about 13,000 clients in 12 locations. We've um, supported the production and distribution of over 500,000 pounds of food, and we've, generated, we've supported um, our agribusiness farmers, refugee and immigrant farmers, in generating almost $400,000 in income. IRC supports a myriad of interventions that focus on food security and nutrition, and we work with new arriving populations, as well as those that have been here for a much longer period of time. IRC uses the framework of food secure resettlement, which means a lot of different things, but that means that when people arrive to the United States, we want to make sure that they are housed within one mile of a fully stocked grocery store when it's possible, Um, that we provide them with a first culturally appropriate meal. We stock their fridge with culturally relevant produce. Um, When we can, we do provide a a real-time in-person grocery store orientation. When that is not possible, we do explain the the differences within the American food system to help people navigate and find free food resources. We support their benefit enrollment, which sometimes can be a treacherous and long process, but is obviously very important for people who have just arrived here. Um, And then we support ongoing um, client monitoring and food security needs. And then there's kind of the more in-depth, longer-term wraparound services that support nutrition, including nutrition education, and longer-term food security strategies. Some of this work, the earlier work, is done by caseworkers who are the ones welcoming newly arrived um, refugees. And then the longer-term services are provided by other types of staff that provide wraparound services. And we definitely have gone through a journey with our monitoring and evaluation. And I'm, IRC is a very large organization. Um, we are evidence-driven. Um, and we do have our own internal IRB. So what I'm referring to right now is really the experience of New Roots, which is a subset of services that IRC provides and that journey specifically. Um, so we have tried on all sorts of different types of monitoring and evaluation tools to try to figure out, you know, are our interventions impactful? What are the outcomes? Are we meeting the outcomes that we are seeking? Um, and we've had, you know, uh, a, it was definitely a very, lear- a, a very um, interesting experience in that we started with very kind of top-down, extractive, very specific tools that were looking at very specific questions, and we found that in terms of kind of project monitoring, they weren't that useful in that we weren't getting very good data out of them. They were hard to use with the populations that we work with. Um, They were also hard on our staff. They were super time consuming and very difficult to do um, in terms of, you know, their time and and, and the free time that our clients had. Um, so we started to move away from very extractive methods and we've at first started to explore participatory action methods like most significant change and photo voice. And those proved to be much more informative. They really opened the door for client voice and it gave us an opportunity to to build a conversation, right? A two way street from which we could pull, you know, not only pull in not only our client knowledge their leadership, their strength, but also to immediately be reactive to those stories and to learn from them, but to also adapt our project to what we were learning in a much more real-time way. And to come back with our findings to the people that we're working with, right? So no longer are we extracting information, taking it and walking away with it, but it was a much more a kind of partnership-built process where the people that we work with, they become the co-researchers, right? They are participating in, especially with PhotoVoice, they are participating in the collection of information, in the co-analysis of information. Um, And that was really eye-opening. It was culture-changing for us and for our staff. At the same time, it was a great way to to build um, staff capacity right and to you know we did have a lot of pushback from our staff we we have a lot of grants that require a lot of monitoring obviously it is needed to understand you know whether we're achieving what we are trying to do but the people that we hire and work with they don't always have that background in evaluation and participatory action methods are very approachable and they are not hard to do. They are structured and they give you what you need, but they are a great way to kind of dip your toe into monitoring and evaluation if you're not that familiar with it. The other tool that we are using is an adapted HFIAS scale. So we're using these things side by side and they complement each other. Um, The Household Food and Security Access Scale gives us a score of whether a client is food secure. We've uh, whittled it down to about three main questions. Um, and we use several versions of it depending on the intervention. So I've already mentioned some of these comparisons, um, but most significant change and photo voice are, again, outcomes, um, are participant-driven. They use qualitative methods, but they are very structured, and there's a process to them. You can tease out quantitative things, out. you know, you can quantify the themes that you're catching within the stories or the co-analysis process that you're doing with the photo voice images. They're very accessible to non-English speakers. Um, most significant change is based on storytelling, which resonates with every culture. Photo voice is based on capturing images. Again, it speaks to to the human experience. The HFIS, um has been validated abroad. It, it, the original HFIAS survey was part of the FANTA project that was used um, in conflict-affected de- and development settings, um, so it has been used and adapted and resonates um, really well in terms of the terminology that it uses to talk about um, quantities and quality of food. Um, so, we've ha- we've, the adaptation was more to shorten it, to make it more accessible for our staff to do on an iterative basis, on an annual basis, and it is not invasive for clients. So the key learning from, from these experiences for us is that um, Participatory methods really opened the door for client voices for us in a significant way, and it allowed for shared narratives and provided substance um, to anecdotal evidence of land-based urban gardening and farming programs and their impacts on what we've learned to be social capital, self-efficacy, sense of belonging, in addition to their food access and nutrition benefits. The HFIAS survey, again, provided us information on monetary barriers, but also non-monetary barriers, like transportation or lack of free food resources in communities. Um, what is key as well is that we absolutely, when we provide the HFIS survey to our clients, we make sure to couple it with immediate food provision um, or referrals to free food to free food services when, um, because it is really important to do those things. If you are asking people if they are experiencing food security, to not just walk away from that conversation. Um, And we also glean a lot of really useful information from, we have an open kind of feedback part of that survey, so we ask them specific questions to be able to provide the food security score, but we glean a lot of information from the comment section. One of the quotes is up on the slide. Um, So to conclude, both of these surveys have been, and both of these methods, the participatory action research methods that I mentioned, but also the HFIS survey have been really instrumental in. Um, changing the way that we think about evaluation and and how we build evaluation around our projects and how we connect the two. And again, opening that door for conversation, empowering our clients for being the co-researchers has been really instrumental in improving the design of our interventions to be more culturally um, appropriate. So I'm gonna pass it over to Eleni now uh, from the Capital Area Food Bank.
3: Thanks, Eugenia. Hi, everyone. My name is Eleni Rigsby. I work for the Capital Area Food Bank, which is the Feeding America member food bank and the DMV. The ca- mission of the Capital Area Food Bank and like many other food banks in our nation is to help our neighbors thrive by creating more equitable access to food and opportunity through community partnerships. Um, I'll give you kind of an overview of how we actually get food into our warehouse and out, of the, out into the community. Um, we procure millions of pounds of food uh, across the food system, so this last year we procured over 53 million meals. Um, that all comes into uh, one of three warehouses. We have one warehouse at our headquarters, as they say, in D.C. We also have a warehouse in Hyattsville, Maryland and a warehouse in Northern Virginia to ensure that we can have multiple access points. Um, The food is then distributed uh, through 300 different nonprofit agencies throughout our DMV uh, area. Um, All of these agencies do pay uh, for the products that they receive from the food bank, but then they distribute them at zero cost to our community members. Um, It's important to note that the food bank has vast purchasing power. Being a member of Feeding America um, allows us to purchase things at a a stark discount from if an agency was supposed, if they went to Costco or the grocery store. So we're allowed to, we're able to extend those discounts out to our agency members. Um, and then the food bank, and it's our distribution network, uh, distributes to uh, around 500,000 individuals every single year. Um, so we have a very big reach, um, but I want to tell you a little bit more about how we actually go through our procurement and get that food to what that food is that comes into our warehouse. Um, so. My job, I'm the food sourcing manager at the food bank, so I, I play a central role in helping bring bring the food into the warehouse. Um, so we have three streams through which food splo- uh, flows through. Um, We have our donated products, so anytime that you walk through the grocery store and you see a box that says, this is going to Capital Area Food Bank, and you drop food into there, that is part of our food drives. Um, We also have uh, different uh, things that we can get through donated foods, like working with larger retailers. Giant, for example, brings full truckloads of product to our facility once per month. Um, We also have agreements with farmers through Feeding America that we get their excess product. We only pay for the packaging and shipping, um, but that's also part of our donated stream. Like other food banks in the country, we are recipients of two different USDA programs. Um, That's the Temporary Emergency Food Assistance Program and the Commodity Supplemental Food Service Program. Both of those serve strictly seniors um, in our area. And then lastly, what I'm here really to speak about today is our purchased food. Um, That comes from wholesalers, farmers, and food distributors. And as you uh, may expect, we don't have a whole lot of control over what's donated into our facility. Um, As as when you're shopping in the grocery store, you're seeing, oh, maybe I'll buy this extra box of cereal to put into into the food drive. Um, We can, of course, encourage folks and encourage our larger retailers to donate certain items, but it's not a, a guarantee that we're gonna get the items that we're looking for. Same with the the USDA product. While we can certainly encourage and and push forward different priorities upon the USDA, um, we can't say, these are the items that we want, and this is when we want them. However, we do have that power with our purchase product. Um, So I'll share that. At the beginning of 2020, before the craziness hit, um, our nutrition ed team did a really robust study um, looking at our service areas and looking at census data to see who is living in those areas. Um, And then they did an analysis looking at what are the different products that folks eat. Um, And they they broke it down looking at the different procurement subcategories of plant protein, animal protein, grains, spices, and pantry staples. And the goal of this report was really to, one, help out the procurement team, i.e. myself, and identify different products. These are the products that you should be bringing into the food bank. The second priority was to help ascertain you know, certain priorities that we should have around culturally familiar food. You know looking at our, our AOP our annual operating plan and saying at least 40% of all food brought into the food bank should be culturally familiar. But if we didn't know what foods that we wanted what folks wanted nor where we could get them, it wasn't able to present, to present those goals. And then the third priority of this report was really to designate those those products on our partner link um, to help folks identify which items would they, they could pick that would serve the, the clientele of their area, um, and so this was really really helpful. Uh, but then. COVID hit, and so we had to really take a step back and just put our head to the ground and start purchasing food. We purchased over 700 truckloads of food within the first two months. Um, and you know I think it wasn't until about a year and a half ago when things started calming down a little bit that we could really get back to our priorities in terms of food purchasing. So the different groups that we looked at um, for that made up the vast majority of the folks in our service area, were from East Asia, Latin America, East Africa, West Africa, Middle and North Africa, and Central and South Asia. And then upon that, there were different items in each subcategory that I mentioned before that the food procurement group brought in. Um, and we were really, really lucky to have generous funding that allowed us to kind of do some testing of these products. Um, so like I mentioned, everything is listed as a, at a sale price on our menu for our partners. Um, but the great thing is, is that with generous funding, we were allowed to. Ha- offer a discount out to our partners on new items, seeing, you know, would folks buy it if we offered a 15% discount to test out different products? Um, As you may expect, we bring everything in by the full truckload, and we didn't want to do that with new products if we were just going to sit on them forever. Um, So I can tell you that we brought in two pallets of barley, and that barley sat in our warehouse for a year and a half no one ordered it so it was really wonderful to have this this product or the the funding to be able to bring in the products and test it out Um, one thing that i will say is we've just gotten another round of this funding and the first round provided to be really really uh, beneficial we brought in items like coconut milk dried garbanzo beans halal chicken peanuts coffee tea um, some things that you might not think about as generally like staples in a person's diet but we want to also think about like what brings you joy when you're eating Um, so the second round of funding we wanted to go a little bit more diverse and so this time we have a spice box something that we've never been able to offer at the food bank generally because spices are something that have been more expensive and didn't yield a lot in terms of actually giving nutrition to someone um, so that hasn't been a focus of us in the past but the spice box has been wildly popular and it's something that we will continue to have in our inventory um, we also have done a fresh halal chicken and fish box um, so we've never purchased a uh, fresh fish before so again really exciting stuff for us um, but as, as we kind of look towards this next, next fiscal year we understand that it is our responsibility as the largest hunger relief organization in in this area to make sure that we're providing items that people actually want to consume um, and that's culturally familiar to them. So we will continue to do these reports and look back and see, are these products actually beneficial to everyone? And identifying, you know, doing consumer surveys essentially with our partner network to make sure that they feel that we are offering things that they want to choose from, um, and then lastly, I'll share that the the main goal of, of the food bank is to make sure that you know we have accessible, nutritious food. And a lot of you know what we're hearing most of the time is people want more produce. So, forty percent of everything that we procure is fresh produce, and that all goes on our menu at zero cost to our partners, assuming you know we understand that they want to get fresh produce out into the community and not have to pay for it. So. Um, a lot of information to absorb. The food bank is a very large uh, organization, but I really encourage you to, if you're not from the area, get involved with your local food bank. Um, either volunteer or uh, you know, lend your own expertise in this area, because we are always looking for outside voices. So with that, I'll pass it back to Ailey.
1: Thank you all so much. Um, it was all really interesting. Um, I, just, I just had a qu- couple questions before we sort of turn it over to the room. Um, but I was sort of wondering in, in your, for any of you, in your shift to um, use more culturally responsive or culturally humble approaches, what's one of the most notable challenges you, sh- you faced?
0: So one of the challenges is this. Yes, it's working. (laughs) One of the challenges, there are many certainly, but um, one notable one is that you know we're we're working to develop agri uh, entrepreneurs, smallholder farmers, right, from the refugee and immigrant communities. Uh, But at the same time, there's this inherent tension between us, uh, you know, supporting them and being productive and meeting a profitable price point where they're selling directly to consumers, and at the same time reaching their own communities you know, which are economically disadvantaged, often where where they're located and where they're selling, um, and that population being able to afford their, you know, the ethnically uh, grown produce. So finding that, where, where do they meet, right? How do we support the farmers in, in making a profitable income, but how do we also make this food affordable and accessible in, in, the, in these communities? And I will say that SNAP match and WIC match programs have really been the key to making that work for us. Thank you. Um,
3: And I'll share that we we have been recipients of the local food uh, agreement program, um, and that has really allowed us to start working with more local farmers in our area. Um, And as you can imagine, the food bank is always trying to get produce at a very low price per pound to ensure that we can purchase the most. Um, However, you know, many of these smaller farms, particularly immigrant farmers that are first getting started in the area, you know, land is very expensive over here, um, and so they must, you know, they have to sell their their products at a higher price, um, and you know before we had the LFPA funding, we were engaging in conversations, and you know interestingly enough, uh, one of the smaller farms that we have thus uh, or since begun working with, um, they have a very notable quote that I think fits perfectly to the situation that Eugenia just mentioned, but. Uh, Tope at Dodo Farm said, if I sell to the food bank below the price that I need to make a living, then I'll be forced to stand in the same line to get the food that I'm growing. Um, And so I think that's just a really uh, poignant uh, quote to think about, OK, we have to remember that while, one, we want to get the food out to the communities, we also have to pay the vendors a fair and living price.
1: Thank you. yeah, so uh, you know, I think a lot of people here have some awareness of you know of of trying to be culturally relevant, uh, trying to use more um, responsive practices. But you know, organizations might not be at that point. You know, the organizations that they work as part of. And so I'm wondering if any of you have um, any key lessons or ideas um, that. Uh, come up to you to share with um, our audience here today? Where where should people start?
2: Um, So I have two ideas. Uh, I think the first part is, um, because cultural humility, right, is around that internal exploration. So like internally within your your organization, but also um, being introspective within yourself. Um, And one of the things that I see that's a missed opportunity is, the opportunity to develop relationships, while also um, getting qualitative information from your communities, um, you know. Continuously surveying communities that you're working with, whether it's quantitative or qualitative, uh, quickly leads to survey fatigue, especially in communities that have been uh, historically marginalized over a period of time, and we constantly see outsiders going in and asking for more and more information without really seeing actionable change that makes those communities better. So how can you use the qualitative data collection process um, in order to establish relationship? I know in a lot of, um, especially native communities, communities and um, a lot of other communities that belong to people of the global majority, um, talking, conversing um, is a great way to build trust, right, and how to do that in a way that allows for vulnerability, um, that uh, that uh, that allows for a sense of authenticity. Um, at the same time, right, you don't want this to be transactional. You want to engage in reciprocity, which is very important to um, a lot of native communities, a lot of communities of color. Um, but it's important also who is collecting the information, um, especially qualitative. I think that it's incredibly important to have people on your staff that are representative of the community served. And beyond kind of a tokenized model, right, that actually belong to these communities and you're working with them um, in order for uh, uh for you to be able to um, get the work done that you need to be done, but also while um, actively working to build relationship. So that's one. Um, The second one is I think it's important to be willing to be curious and do some exploration um, around what constitutes health in our culture, in our society, and what it means um, when something is nutritious or healthy or unhealthy. Um, so for example, I know we have a lot of SNAP-Ed people here. We're kind of the default nutrition education tool is the MyPlate, right? Um, I think it's important to be willing to be curious around how centering this MyPlate model as the ideal concept of a healthy meal uh, might center Western or Eurocentric notions about what it means to be healthy. So for example, I'm part of the Latin diaspora. Um, a lot of our foods are combination foods, right? We might have the rice and the beans, um, but a lot of our protein and vegetable dishes are often mixed together, which is pretty normative of, of a lot of cultures um, that are non-European, that are non-Western, right? Um, and a lot of vegetables are hidden inside other dishes. For example, I'm Puerto Rico, Know uh, that I'm Puerto Rican, and the basis of a lot of our meals is something called sofrito. So who here has ever heard of sofrito? So it is the base. It is a onion, garlic, uh, uh, cilantro, tomato base that um, serves with the, uh, uh, the as the foundations of a lot of our bean dishes, a lot of our stews, it's very vegetable rich, right? But often we don't hear about this when we're talking about ways to make food, quote unquote, healthier. Um, so that's just a couple of examples that I use from my own personal lived experience, but um, happy to hear from Eugenia and,
0: and Eleni. Yeah, just um, agreeing with all of that. I think we, we've had a lot of experience working within communities really successfully through community health promoters who represent that community and they did exactly that. They adapted the MyPlate to look like what it should in their culture to make, um, you know, to to support nutrition education messaging. Um, And I think there's a real moment of opportunity here for, as as Ailey noted in the beginning, for, for new arriving populations. You know, the first year or two, um, when you know there's this term acculturation, right? And then there's generational things that happen with, with children and youth that arrive into this country. But there's a real moment of opportunity to celebrate, um, you know, to celebrate culture and food uh, within that moment, and um, to to help support nutrition in a way that celebrates and not demonizes traditional food cultures. Um, and, and kind of recognizing that, that folks that arrive here, they actually want to eat fresh foods, right? That's not the issue. The issue is food access in their communities and economic um, barriers, right? So more, it's, it's around more supporting, um, celebrating the food culture. It's, it's around um, trying to recognize and understand the barriers and supporting ways to, to food access in, in those communities. Um, yeah, so I guess I'll pass it over to you. <laughs> Oh, gosh,
3: I, I don't have a ton to add here. I feel like y'all's, y'all really hit the response. Um, the on, nail on the head, whatever that phrase is. Um, I will share that I think one thing that's so important is just to go back to your research data um, You know, time and time again at certain intervals. I would hazard to guess that if we were to look at our 2020 report and do an analysis again, the population data mu- will have shifted. Um, and especially, we know that, you know, this is an area that's very, very expensive to live, and as rent prices raise, people move into, into different areas. So, you know, I think that's, that's something that I think is really important to just go back and look, look back at the data and make sure that every year you're analyzing what's really the folks that are actually there.
1: Thank you all so much. Um, yeah, so, oh, thanks, Petrilli. So we have a moment now where we would love for um, to hear from all of you. I know I was in a session yesterday where there was a ton of knowledge in the room. So um, take a moment at your tables. Uh, take a couple of minutes. We want to give you a chance to sort of reflect on this question, right? So this thing in italics here. What is one key next step that you can take to incorporate more cultural humility into your nutrition work so just take like 30 seconds of silent writing or reflection time
0: and if there's only like one or two of you at a table please come join and mingle yeah it's we'll, an opportunity to we'll have a, a chance bit. for you
1: to talk at tables
2: And then
4: we
0: have
5: like a good
4: minutes
5: <laughs> is there anything else
0: you
1: guys feel like I guess maybe there
0: might be some questions that Might be some yeah. I'm going know. I don't know. Hesitant to like walk myself over to the mic. I think some people might feel more comfortable. We let's offer both options. Yeah. Yep. Getting the mic where they are.
1: All right. So we'd love to hear.
0: Am
1: I on? We'd love to hear um, about some of your discussions. Would anyone like to share what you've been talking about or any questions that have come up? Any major insights or breakthroughs that have happened at your tables? And there's also a microphone here, if you want to come up, but I can bring it over to you. What? Any questions or, yeah, or any uh, discussions, any bright ideas that came out of your table discussions? I'd love to hear about them. All
5: right. Um, we were talking about thinking about the multi-dimensional relationship with food, and at my organization we use this survey called the Meaning of Food and Life Questionnaire. Um, and when you're talking with parents, immigrant parents, how do you help them also prioritize their own health, even as they're really worried about like their children and the cultural erasure that they're watching kind of happen throughout like the stat that you guys mentioned in the beginning, one generation so I feel like when I'm working with refugee parents, they, are, they know what's coming, they know what's happening, and so there's a lot of fear there about their culture being erased as they're also wanting their kids to acclimate and be comfortable in this country. And I've often found that it's hard to get moms to focus on their own health um, because the, the challenge of like, helping their kids navigate two cultures simultaneously is, is you know so stressful. So anyway, we were talking about strategies there. I don't know that there's a silver bullet, but Any other
1: idea?
5: We were really, really
6: intrigued by the my plate tailoring to cultural foods, because that is I mean, that makes total sense. Everything is almost like a stew. And so uh, what, what do you suggest in that regard? really kind of ta- tailor it? You know, I mean, I'd love to hear more about that. That's a really fascinating and interesting point.
1: Okay, do you, do you have an answer to that, or, or we'll have you, or do you want to speak next? Oh, cool. Let's see this.
7: I'd love to hear from the panelists. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, well, I was going to say. So, um, I I work in a free and charitable clinic, which means I have a little bit more flexibility in the resources that I use and how I counsel my patients. Um, so I actually end up leaning towards using more so that like the diabetic plate planner that like the ADA has or like the Family Institutes of Health has it's called like my healthy eating plate. So I know yesterday in one of the chats about developing the dietary guidelines um, for Latinos and Hispanic patients they uh, or clients they talked about how sometimes it might be confusing that you know beans are part of the grains group. So the thing I like about the way this plate planner um, method is used is that instead of it being grains it's carbohydrates so then the fruits are also kind of in that section of the plate um, so yeah but I'd, I'd be more interested to see like my plate as well have more of those um, the cultural tailor but yeah I guess since I don't have the government funding and things like that I don't have to yeah so <laughs> that's why. yeah thank you
1: Were there anything, yeah, I mean, also from our panelists, have you seen other representations of that? Or used something different?
0: I mean, yeah, we, our community health promoters will make it, you know, depending on their culture, they'll just make a a fake one, you know, uh, that looks like with the mixed carbs and and the proteins and the vegetables kind of, right, to basically resemble a, a typical dish of that culture and then they will talk more about you know just the amounts roughly like when you're preparing how much meat do you put into this or when you're preparing you know how many just you know is it a handful is it two handfuls right so kind of speaking in terms that are much easier to kind of relate to really rather than the separate pieces of it right in the plate where the vegetables are strangers to the to the proteins <laughs>
2: Um, so I don't do individual one-on-one counseling anymore. Um, I haven't done that in a while, but if I ever do end up doing, uh, nutrition, um, uh, community nutrition training for individuals, um, I think, I mean, I think, Even though motivational interviewing has its limitations, I think it's a great way as a way to establish relationship and um, build curiosity together around what a patient client um, eats and what they perceive as, "Quote unquote healthy or unhealthy, right? I think um, doing some exploration around kind of what I said—the food access tiers. um, What foods do you consider culturally necessary for every meal, right? And then center nutrition education around that, right? Uh, Tortilla is, you know, a source of carbohydrates. They give your brain energy. You know, um, rice and beans. You know, if you don't have meat, um, this is a great substitute, right? So while I understand." the premise of a lot of these generic um, nutrition education materials, I'll be completely transparent, it's that it's really been hard for me to translate them into uh, education that doesn't center um, American, US, Western-centric notions. Any other questions
1: or interesting insights that came out of your discussions? What else came up at your tables? You were all talking. There must have been something you were talking about.
2: Anyone? Yeah, I mean, if folks have more questions, feel free to use the mic that's here um, to ask about anything you might have seen during the presentation. Thank you, Nancy.
8: Um, so, my name is Rina, um, and I work with a local health improvement coalition within Maryland that is within our health department, and we work with a variety of, um, of partners, including the food bank. My question relates to, um, like, with the Capital Area Food Bank or the other organizations speaking in terms of the measures of um, self-sufficiency and what, what what are some of the measures that are used to assess um, clients um, and members as they go towards self-sufficiency? And the reason why I'm asking this is because um, in our county it's a relatively wealthy county, but there is a lot of need. And what we are seeing is that on a daily basis, there's like a lot of a lot of residents are coming in accessing certain more. Every day, the number keeps, like, they keep breaking records. The need keeps increasing um, on a daily basis at the food bank and the food pantry, so I'm just curious to see, are you also um, seeing that, and how are you measuring um, self-sufficiency? Yeah,
3: that's a great question. And. Eliza, my colleague sitting right next to you, um, works on our nutrition ed team who may <laughs> be able to uh, expand more on this, but I will, I'll share that um, every Feeding America member food bank measures a, what's called the MPIN, which is the meals per individual served or something, something along those lines. And um, that's, we, we are only, our goal is to not completely give out every single meal that an individual needs. Our our goal is to meet the MPIN of, I think it's, I think it's like 60%, so 60% of the meals that they get should be from the food bank. Um, I will say that we, across the board, all of our partners, yes, have said that they've con- seen continuous need. Um, and you know that's really told us that this is a marathon, not a sprint, towards recovery, and that those who have been hardest hit by the pandemic are still recovering um, at a much smaller, slower rate than those who were better off before the pandemic, financially, with their housing, food, everything like that. Um, and lastly, i'll I'll say that our meals goals are are reflective of what we we see going on in the current climate, right? So um, this last year, our we work on fiscal years that are different than the calendar year. Um, we served, I think, forty six million meals. Um, and so our goal this year is is slightly decreased at forty four million. We probably will go above and beyond that, um, like we have we've surpassed our meals goal uh the past couple years as well which just tells us that the need is not going away Um, we don't have a goal to decrease our budget anytime soon our budget exponentially grew at the height of the pandemic and has only decreased very very slightly compared to we've had more than 150 percent growth Um, so we have no no plans to to drastically cut those numbers at all Um, and we are consistently onboarding new folks um, new partners, new direct distributions, which are distributions that the food bank puts onto the community that are at zero cost as well. Um, so we are constantly evolving, and I think pivot is probably our favorite word at the food bank, just to make sure that we are consistently meeting the need.
6: Hello. Yes. Uh, well, I'd like to share something a little bit about my about my about my country. I am from Chile. Andres, it is my name. Okay and we are taking certain people we are taking a little bit if you want changing approach okay and maybe this approach may be useful okay and our approach is it is more than tell them to the people what what they have to actually do okay is ask them questions what, what type of question they say well do you want to eat Are you comfortable with the thing that you are eating now? Because maybe we have many people who are not eating healthy and they are pretty happy with that, okay? After that, we ask them, well, if you want to eat healthier, what actually, for you, mean eat healthier? Yeah? Which also opens to a different type of answers. And finally, I say, well, what stops you to eat healthier if you want to eat healthier. And with three open questions, give us, open our eyes to a different type of answers, things that we were not thinking that actually help help, help people. And there are certain things that may are not very difficult, that if we help them, we open the door to a healthier choices.
4: Hello, uh, Trish from Minnesota. And we're really excited in Minnesota. Our past legislative session, they passed free breakfast and lunch for all children in Minnesota. And so, yay. Um, so that you know, the, when you think of P and PSE policy, says that's the big P, right? But what are your thoughts on how? Have you seen where this has happened in other places? The impact on food access, or on food banks, or the agencies you work in? What should we How can we, as educators, best um, uh, connect with? You know, how can we make that better and best? Will we see reduction in demand at food pantries or food banks? I'm just kind of thinking about. What have you seen, uh, if you've seen this from other places, what we could anticipate in Minnesota?
3: Um, I, truthfully, I'm not sure whether you'll, what, what impact that will have on, on food insecurity in your area. Uh, ideally, um, it would reflect a, a decrease in, in people's, um, you know, food inaccessibility. Um, however I you know we don't know maybe the kid maybe those children don't want to eat what's at school or maybe the parents don't want them to eat what's at school or you know when they're still getting home they're not there's no more food so you know I think we'll just have to see how it plays out unfortunately I don't have a clear answer on that Um, I, I I think that it hopefully will help and and certainly what we've seen is like you know, when school meals go away, there's a higher need in the summer. That's the evidence that we do have. Um, however, we, we know that kids and families aren't taking advantage as, as, of summer meals as much as they ideally should. So that's still showing that, like, there is a gap in access, and, and how do we reach all of those folks?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, That's a good question, and I would like to point to You know what did we see during the first two years of the pandemic with the child meal waivers right i don't know about other places in the country here in dc um the waivers allowed for credible flexibility when it came to school meals um and more people were accessing them than ever before did that reduce the rate of people using pantries and charitable charitable distribution models? No, right? What we did see was a decrease in food insecurity, total food insecurity. So now that those waivers are no longer applicable, we're seeing food insecurity go up um, because people have lost access. So even though um, we do have states, like if we move toward states passing um, the free or or the school meals for all um, legislation, um, The point where we are with food insecurity in this country, I don't see an increase in the usage of uh, charitable food models. Um, I think we have a long way to go until we actually start seeing the result that I think you are mentioning.
0: I'll also just throw in one one other thing is that we also forget that people eat more than breakfast and lunch, right? There's dinner and there's especially for children and youth, growing bodies, right, developing minds, they need snacks, and so schools provide free lunches and free okay. some schools and free breakfast, but it's often that gap, especially for those students that are doing after school activities, right, they don't get dinner. So there's that need still, and we, in one of the schools where we, work, two of the schools in, um, in Alameda County, um, we, we work with a food bank that supplies, that does food distributions at the two high schools where we work, for the entire community, and they provide healthy free food snacks uh, throughout the day as well. right? So there's other ways, I think, to, f- to fill that gap, and I think the need is certainly still there.
1: All right. Well, we are at time, so I'd like to thank our presenters, Petrilli, Eugenia, and Eleni, and thank Thanks you all Ailey. for your contributions. Thanks for coming.
0: Thanks, everybody.